Welcome to Intangibles, a podcast about traits, behaviors, and qualities that entrepreneurs can cultivate to help be successful. I'm your host, Steve Berg. I'm a partner at a New York City-based venture capital fund called Lytical Ventures. Lytical Ventures focuses on early-stage investments of companies that drive corporate intelligence. Corporate intelligence includes, for example, cybersecurity, data and analytics, and artificial intelligence. You can find us at www.liticalventures.com. Lytical is spelled L-Y-T-I-C-A-L. Ventures, all one word, dot com. This season is brought to you by Denton's Venture Technology Group at dentonsventurebeyond.com. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard-charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at dentonsventurebeyond.com. We have a new production partner this season, VC Careers. If you're looking for a job in venture capital, join over 8,000 VCs and VC job hunters on John Gannon's VC Jobs email list. Visit johngannonblog.com slash intangibles to learn more and to subscribe. Also, please find Intangibles on its new home on the web, www.intangiblespodcast, all one word, dot com. There are only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other is though everything is a miracle. Albert Einstein said this. How can anything be a miracle unless we notice it? How can we notice something if we don't focus our attention on it? How can we focus our attention unless we are mindful? If Albert Einstein is right, then there are a lot of miracles most of us are missing out on. My guest today is going to help us all notice, at least a little bit better, the miracles that we are surrounded by. He's a longtime student of mindfulness. Joe Burton is the first founder that has ever been on the podcast. His company is called Will, and he will tell us more about it in a second. In addition, Joe and I have been friends since sometime in the early 90s, so it's that much greater of a pleasure to speak with him. I'm not going to give you his background as I normally do, because when he provides it, you will see why it is the perfect explanation for why he found mindfulness and then became a mindfulness founder. I will tell you that Joe is the author of a new book called Creating Mindful Leaders. And as many of you know, mindfulness has, through multiple guest references, become a hot topic on the Intangible podcast recently. Let me welcome Joe Burton. Joe, as I mentioned, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Steve, it's so great to hear your voice. I'm happy to be here. Um, We've had probably... I'd say 15 podcast guests um, of the 25 or 30 in total that have come on to talk about some other soft skill. And then they all casually mention the contribution that mindfulness makes to strengthening that other skill. So let's start with the idea that this audience is sold on the value of mindfulness. And let's talk about what it actually is and the way it can improve what leaders do. However, before we do that, would you kindly give a little background on yourself and what brought you to mindfulness? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think the short answer of what brought me to mindfulness is uh, back pain, crisis, uh, anger management, stress, insomnia. (laughs) So I I started my career um, early on in uh, Pricewaterhouse, uh, which is now PwC, and you know, love the opera out culture, you know, working around the clock and so forth. And then progressed into my career into entertainment and into advertising and into public company life and was lucky enough to become a global COO in a division of a public company. So we had about 50,000 employees around the world. And I spent most of my time, probably 70% traveling, uh, working 14 hour days, wearing stress as a badge of honor. And then, you know, Steve, as you know, uh, uh, my late 30s, things started catching up with me. Um, and I had herniated two discs in my back um, and was suffered from about eight years of chronic back pain. Uh, did that again in my early 40s. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, we're dealing with, you know, the stresses of public company life, you know, the stresses of managing chronic back pain that turned into insomnia, that turned into asthma. 
And then I lost uh, two sisters, um, one to drugs and then my uh, twin sister to suicide. So here I was uh, really just dealing with, you know, more stress than the average bear. And it wasn't going well for my body. So I turned to mindfulness really out of desperation. Uh, you know, it was, the, it was that or spinal fusion uh, in terms of managing pain and all the other issues that went along with it. So a lot of people come in that way when they're sort of in trouble. And, you know, for me, I'm just grateful that I found these techniques. And, and you were a skeptic, right? I mean, you're like, no, this is not for me. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? You know, as a, as a COO, my, my doctor was recommending meditation. I was like, are you crazy? What if somebody found out? You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, that's where I was coming uh, from. And, you know, type A personality in a public company. And, you know, fast forward now, I started Will uh, a little over three and a half years ago. And mindfulness is in the conversation pretty much everywhere. Um, I think about almost half of the Fortune 500 are now running programs of some sort or another. Uh, to help employees manage largely what I was dealing with, you know, which is a, an increasing amount of stress and a decreasing amount of, you know, good health and happiness. Okay. Um, let me dig in a little bit further on the specifics. Um, it may seem like a rudimentary question, but what's the difference between meditation and mindfulness? Can you really have one without the other? You can, and um, I like to think of med meditation as sort of practice. There are dozens and dozens of techniques uh, you can use to calm and focus the mind and relax the central nervous system. So meditation is one, and uh, most people recognize meditation as focusing on one thing, in this case your breath, for a prolonged period of time, and basically training your brain to focus, right? Engage one part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, um, uh, notice when you're distracted, you know, by the normal ruminations of the mind, catch yourself and then come back to focus on the breath. So meditation is a favorite form of practicing to train the brain, you know, um, there are dozens and dozens, dozens of other techniques, right? Uh, reading is great. Poetry is great. Um, yoga is great. Um, journaling, um, sitting and listening to another person is a form of practice, so we go through a lot of this within our training. Um, all of that is how do you train the brain to focus on one thing at a time? So meditation is one of many forms. Uh, it's a you know a fan favorite, if you will. And mindfulness is, I like to think of mindfulness as game day. How do you apply all that you've learned uh, into your relationships, into your meetings, into how you interact with your spouse or your child? Uh, are you able to focus and enjoy uh, music, art, whatever it is you're doing in the moment? Right. So think of meditation as one form of practice and mindfulness as applying that practice. That's pretty helpful. Um, so I think many people listening have been through a guided meditation, but in, in case they haven't, could you talk us through the parameters of what your normal daily meditation is like? And if you want to put it that in the context of will, um, I think that'd be helpful also. Sure. Uh, so first, Will is the name of my company. It's W-H-I-L. And uh, I started it uh, about three and a half years ago. Prior, than that, uh, prior to that, I helped create a uh, consumer app called Headspace, which has been a big hit with consumers. And my personal practice uh, is I like to kick off the day uh, with a short practice, usually around five or ten minutes. Um, I focus on things like intention, gratitude, um, you know, what uh, is most important to me at any particular time. Uh, that sort of calms the mind and gets me focused for the day. At 3 o'clock uh, every day at will, our team comes together for a guided uh, mindfulness meditation practice. Uh, so we have a practice room here at our offices in San Francisco, and uh, we go through our content. So, you know, for example, uh, this week is self-awareness, um, one of our programs is the famous search inside yourself program that was created at Google. So we have that, the digital version of that program. And this week we're cycling through, you know, that, so it's one session a day, you know, five or 10 minutes. Uh, and then we have a discussion after that. And the discussion is largely around, uh, so when it comes to the self-awareness example, how do we apply this? How can we become more self-aware? How do these tools and techniques impact our relationships and how we do business together? 
And, you know, so that moves from just a personal practice to how can we impact our team and our culture and what we're doing together. Um, so I love that you obviously are, you know, I can just see everyone walking into the room at three o'clock at the company. That's fantastic. Um, just aside, when I've done guided meditations, I always kind of wait until the middle or the afternoon of the day because I figure like, oh, I'm, I'm wound up. This is a chance for me to ground. But I noticed you start out in the morning. Is there a particular reason for that? Yeah, there is. Um, almost everything that we do, we've got about 250 programs, about 1,500 sessions now. And uh, they're all based in science. And so when it comes to a morning practice, particularly around gratitude, the Mayo Clinic has done a lot of research um, around the benefit of gratitude and uh, positivity. And in running a startup, which is you know a high-stress proposition, starting the day with gratitude is a great way to think about all the things that are going right uh, instead of all of the challenges that we face day in and day out. And so uh, I like to start that day that way each day, you know, to sort of clear the mind and get ready for game time. Uh, and then you're right, towards the afternoon, it's great to take that break, get a little boost of energy, relax the mind, and then get back at it. Mm. How much does consistency matter in the practice of mindfulness? Yeah, I think it's like uh, it's like anything else. If you think about training the brain as a as like any other muscle, uh, I'd say five or ten minutes a day on a fairly regular basis is helpful. Uh, that's where uh, most scientific research kicks in to show like, oh, this actually starts to change um, the makeup of the brain, how neural uh, pathways connect, um, the uh, ability to be focused, uh, and so forth. Um, uh, as you're going into this. One of the benefits is also uh, not just sort of breathing as you're, if you're using meditation as a form of practice, but deep breathing uh, has been shown to have tremendous impacts on the cardiovascular system. You know, the ability to relax the central nervous system is as important as being able to focus the mind. And so um, you get those benefits by making it a, a, a normal part of your routine. So I recommend to be able, you know, fit it in three to four times a week if you can every day, uh, you know, if you really want to get the greatest benefits. And um, more and more research is showing small breaks throughout the day have tremendous benefit. You know, everyone's suffering from stress, anxiety, constant worry. You know, the numbers are all going the, the wrong way when it comes to that and depression. And these breaks, you know, especially for folks who are working 10 or 12 hours a day, which is becoming more and more the norm, uh, these small breaks throughout the course of the day, even if it's a minute or two here and there, can have tremendous impact on resetting the system. I had Dan Pink on the podcast a month or two ago, and he was advocating the very same thing, that the small breaks throughout the day allow a kind of a mental reset. Um, so you mentioned connections within the brain. Is that neuroplasty? Is that the same thing? Uh, it is. So this, this idea of the brain is kind of like plastic, where um, depending upon how you use it, uh, you actually change uh, the form and makeup of the brain, and you uh, change how neural connections are made. So neural connections are basically, you know, electric energy in the brain. They can track this uh, these days through oxygenated hemoglobin, like where oxygen goes in the brain is where the brain's focus and energy is going. The um, and there's been a ton of research, you know, going back to in the 1906 uh, a uh, famous Spanish neuroanatomist Ramon y Cajal was the first to start dissecting brains and doing hand-drawn images of the brains, mapping neural connections, if you can imagine. So even back then, he came up with this postulate of anyone, if they chose, could be the architect of their mind. You know, this idea of your brain develops based on how you use it. And then, you know, most people know Donald Hebb, Hebbian theory, um, you know, 40 years later came up with this concept of neurons that fire together, wire together, right? So we get better at the things we do most. Um, and that's, that's awesome. You know, if you're using the brain, um, like, you know, I'm here in uh, San Francisco, Steph Curry, you know, is training to shoot three pointers all day long to the point where he can do it without even thinking about it. The brain takes over, right? Or it's like Perlman, you know, can play a mean violin without even thinking about it because he's practiced so much. Those neural pathways are there. The problem for most of us is 
But what are we practicing? We're practicing constant distraction with technology and worry and anxiety and insomnia. And the brain gets better and better at processing those negative thoughts. Um, so I'd be happy to go more into the science around that. But there's some fascinating studies um, confirming we're actually training ourselves to be, you know, experts, uh, ninjas, gold, Olympic gold medalists in the wrong things when it comes to brain health. So I think um, I think we should plug the book because that's I, I recommend that people go in and read all the uh, science that you've put in the book. It's just chock full of stuff. Um, the, so we'll mention at the end, and I mentioned in the intro. Um, there's two parts of meditation that stand out for me, uh, and you know, as you discussed them, the breathing and labeling of thoughts. If you wouldn't mind digging a little bit, um, particularly on these topics as they relate to focus. Sure. So I think um, breath work uh, or focusing on your breath is, you know, probably one of the most popular forms of uh, training, so of meditation. And it's great because this is something that's always with you. And, you know, so focusing on the breath as one thing to train your attention on and then training the brain to notice when you're distracted and then coming back to focus on your breath, right? So what does distraction mean? That's when, uh, you know, as you're meditating, you know, breathing in, breathing out, uh, listening to a guided meditation, the brain will go into worry about the future, or about the past, you know, a little conspiracy theory. Is somebody out to get me? You know, um, you know, what's my boss thinking now? What's going on with my spouse? You know, and these little distractions are the brain doing what it does, which is revisit, you know, these these ruminations on a regular basis. So by noticing that and dismissing it and coming back to focus on one thing at a time, you're training the brain to do exactly that. Notice when you're distracted and come back to a single point of focus. Now, the second part you asked about is this, this idea of labeling is uh, fantastic for a variety of things. It's You can label your emotions. You can label the thoughts and dismiss them as you're having a meditation or a mindfulness practice. And the, the beauty of doing this is simply by stopping to label something, you're engaging the thinking brain, right? So usually when we're uh, you know anxious or worried about something, the amygdala, the emotional brain is taking over. So we're thinking about, you know, what could go wrong? What if that went wrong? What's going to happen in the future? Da, da, da. Simply stopping yourself to label that, to say like, oh, I'm experiencing anxiety right now, helps you to think about and engage, you know, the prefrontal cortex. What's going on? Why am I feeling this? Is this risk happening right now? Should I be worried about this? How can I address it? So you move from the emotional worry uh, where we all get stuck in these loops without even realizing it and the brain gets better and better at repeating those loops to disrupting that loop and engaging the thinking brain just to say, oh, that's not happening right now. Let me dismiss that and come back to what is happening right now. And you know, these two basic techniques of noticing when you're distracted, dismissing it, and coming back to a single point of focus is super helpful. Right, not not only for business and productivity, which is you know it's it's like magic, but for our health, uh, because in the absence of that, you know we get stuck in these emotional ruminations. Where I like to use the analogy: imagine your brain is like a refrigerator, and you know you don't we chalk it full of good stuff, and then we leave the door open, so the equipment's running constantly to the point where it breaks down, and what's inside is not very good. Um, so these two practices are uh, great to notice like, oh, the door's open, the equipment's running, let me close that and focus on what's happening right now. Uh, it's a great way to take better care of your mental and emotional health. I've, I've always wondered about that, why you don't do anything, right? Because the type A personality in me wants to like run that to a logical conclusion. But now I know that just leaving it alone, not doing anything, is the better way to kind of clear the decks. Um, so you mentioned a bunch of, uh, or at least in passing, the discussion of um, physiological benefits to mindfulness. Um, I saw in the book there's a list of them, and I wondered, I'm going to read that list. I, w I wondered if uh, when you hear that, if there's any particular ones that you want to comment on, um, I think that would be helpful. So 
uh, as I read it, mindfulness is good for concentration and focus, which we talked about, um, fewer triggers, which could be an interesting one, reduce of chronic stress, which you mentioned um, was one of the things that brought you here, reduction in pain, strengthening of immunity, uh, lower blood pressure, increased happiness, improved cardiovascular health, better sleep, and reduced error rate. I mean, it feels very panacea-esque, and I know you've cautioned against that, but wow, that's an amazing list. Um, what in particular jumps out to you? Well, I think, you know, for me, and I go back to why I got into a mindfulness practice to start, it's, uh, I'm a, you know, and you've, you've, we've known each other for a very long time. We're both kind of driven type A personalities. And I had a, a major blind spot, and that was, um, you know, as a global COO, managing eight years of chronic back pain, leading to five years of insomnia, you know, leading to asthma and my body just starting to fall apart. I had this blind spot. I didn't even realize, oh, all of this is affecting my ability to be able to focus, be nice, stay calm under pressure, right? And, uh, you know, so you kind of, over the course of time, when you're under this kind of stress, you sort of turn into a different person, right? So we all have this desired way of being like, you know, I'm going to be a you know fun, engaging leader, right? And then you end up over the course of time turning into this like, oh, I'm going to be distracted, angry, and frustrated. <laughs> yeah. So we don't plan on it, right? And so that that's what really pops for me is like what, if you can look at yourself and say, how do I want to be? And separately, how am I actually showing up and be honest about it? That's where the science resonated with me uh, in that, you know, I didn't want to hear about any of this stuff. Like, you know, are you kidding me? Meditation, what a bunch of hippy dippy, woo woo, touchy feely stuff. That's not for me. Uh, but when I started getting into the science, which is some of the studies that you're quoting, I was like, oh, wow, there's numbers behind this and research and normal people doing it and more CEOs embracing it. And I came around the hard way. Right. Um, anyway, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm going to point people back, um, you know, creating mindful leaders. You got to go read the science in here. It really is amazing. Um, OK, so as I mentioned, there's been a number of people, the guests that have come on the podcast and mentioned mindfulness. Um, not coincidentally, you mentioned a number of these uh, same topics in your book. I'm going to surface a couple of these topics and, and maybe let you riff on them a little bit, and, uh, if you'd be willing to do that. Um, the first one, uh, communication and mindful listening, um, which, by the way, I think are way harder than people think they are. Oh, absolutely. So this, uh, one, one of the biggest issues we find in business is uh, when we work with about 225 companies around the world, we've got about 2 million users. And the, the, the norm, right, is people say like, oh, our work culture is pretty tough, right? And if they're being really honest, oftentimes they'll say our work culture is toxic, right? So people are stressed. You know, we, we have this commanding work culture and we're not communicating very well. And the, over the course of time, what we find in the science, the, uh, and if you've read uh, Daniel Kahneman's great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, most of us train ourselves over the course of time not to listen. We train ourselves to respond. In other words, I want to jump ahead. I want to get the answer in. I want to talk over you. I want to show that I'm smart and so forth. And uh, while some of this comes out of insecurity, over the course of time, it actually becomes a practice where the brain takes over, you know, the emotional brain and you behave this way on a regular basis. And to further complicate that, there are lots of inner workings of the brain that I talk about in the book, like um, the average human being uh, can speak at about 150 words per minute. Well, guess what? The average human being can process words at about 3,000 words per minute. So when it comes to communi communicating and listening, most of us are like bored out of our freaking minds. It's like, can you speak faster? <laughs> I can process words 20 times faster than you can serve them up. And so this idea of mindful listening is, can you slow down and actually use another person as the sole focus of your attention and let them speak for two to three minutes uninterrupted? 
And so that is a game changer, practicing that to the point where it can become part of your normal routine. And then guess what? The folks on the other side feel heard. They feel respected. Uh, they, you know, it reduces stress because it creates this space for conversation. And so it's, you know, one of many, many techniques, but it's fantastic, especially for professionals who, you know, just think to yourself, listener, when's the last time someone listened to you for two minutes without interrupting you? Like it doesn't happen. So that's fantastic. But I've got two immediate thoughts. The first one is um, Daniel Kahneman uh, is constantly brought up almost as much as mindfulness, maybe second. So this group of uh, listeners, they're Daniel Kahneman disciples as well. The second is I have listened to um, Ben Glowey, who's the sound editor of a podcast, edit um, some of the discussions. And he listens, you know, I listen to um, an audio book or whatever at one and a half X or two X. He listens to it at like four or five X. And I'm like, you can hear that? And he's like, yes, of course, it's right here. So um, I, I've got visual evidence of the fact that people can actually <laughs> process way faster than we can talk. Okay. Um, the second one uh, concept. Uh, that I thought was just amazing and I'm really interested in is resilience. And I know that um, you're citing some work from Dr. Liz Stanley in your book, uh, but the stuff about the zone of resilience um, and the place meditation in effective recovery uh, plays is just fascinating. If you would comment on that, it'd be, it'd be great. Sure. So uh, Dr. Uh, Stanley is, is one of my heroes. She's at uh, Georgetown university, uh, former military officer, uh, and her, you know, you can find her story online or her, her TED talks, and uh, you'll see why she's my hero. You know, three active deployments uh, in the military, hundreds of female troops under her watch. Um, while she's dealing with active deployment, she's also dealing with the sexual harassment and 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 abuse, and in some cases, rape of of uh, uh, female military uh, members under her command. And she takes this stuff head on. And she's also taking on the military intelligence and the stress of being in active combat to the point where her systems give out and she ultimately loses her eyesight for three months, right? And so as she tells the story, you know, the doctors estimate that her system was just shutting down to avoid any more stimulus. Well, out of that, um, she ended up creating uh, this wonderful organization called uh, Mind Fitness or MFIT for the military, and it's these form of um, mindfulness practices specifically for uh, folks who have gone through combat or have PTSD and, you know, just amazing. She's also done a whole body of research around resilience and this idea that in the same way that we're all training our brains all the time, we're all training our resilience. We're either increasing it or decreasing it all the time. And so uh, the short of her research is, it's good to bump up against stress uh, to the point where you expand your stress zone. How much can you take on? But you have to back off and recover. And of course, that's where mindfulness comes in. And this idea of constantly bump up against what you can take on and constantly back down to recover expands your zone of resilience. Now, the opposite is also true. If you do what I did, and I think most people do this, which is you run until you hit a wall, right? Until you uh, herniate discs until you, your insomnia is, is terrible, until your body's giving out, and then you take a short break, and then you get right back in there. Well, what happens is over the course of time, you, sh- you uh, shorten, like you reduce that zone of resilience, meaning you can take on less and less. And then the domino effect happens where most of us who hit a wall, it's like we take, you know, take off a few weeks, get right back in there, uh, and then sure enough, in a shorter period of time, you hit a wall again and you bounce back at a lower level. And then later you hit a wall again, you bounce back at yet a lower level of resilience. And so this, um, we cover this research within the book, but the thing I love about this is this notion of the routines that we put ourselves through day in and day out have a tremendous impact on our lives. So you're training your brain all the time, either in good ways or bad ways. You are creating routines in your life that either create good health and happiness or the reverse. Um, and we're either expanding our zone of resilience or contracting it regularly, right? And, you know, all the numbers, as I say, are going the wrong way. These routines are catching up to us. Uh, and her research, I think, does a great job at explaining that. 
Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. Um, I think one thing that we would want to say, uh, I think you would want to say, um, is that not all stress is actually bad, right? Um, may, maybe you could explain why we should develop a positive mindset towards at least certain kinds of stress. Yeah, this is a big uh, part of the learning for me, and I've, I've dedicated probably about the last eight years to really learning as much as I can about the brain science and then what we do in creating our training products at will. And the, there are basically two types of stress, uh, and I'll oversimplify this, but one is um, eustress, which is a good form of stress, and that is where you're on edge, but you know you're ready, you're prepared, you know you, know you can get through it. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know Stephen, you've been a, a runner over time, and you've done boxing and lots of different sports. And, you know, I was a basketball player and a baseball player. So we can flash back and remember those times of like, oh, yeah, we had a big game or a big situation, and I knew I was ready, and things turned out well. So we have that energy, that nervous energy on the edge, and we can perform under pressure, right? So that's eustress. Distress is the opposite. It's when we have all of that nervous energy that turns into worry and anxiety um, because we're not ready. We're not prepared, okay? And in the same way with this sports analogy, where you can have good stress that allows you to perform and get through and win, or bad stress that where you crack and fall or lose under pressure. The same is true in a business setting where, you know, if you're ready for a meeting, if you're ready to manage your emotions, if you're ready to uh, deal with conflict, and what we call, you know, the Asians, uh, you know, innovation, globalization, mobilization, you name it, that's the norm today, right? So do you have the skills to deal with the norm and therefore thrive under pressure, or do you not, where you feel like you're being crushed under the pressure? Yeah, um, and and obviously very uh, significant to be able to define, uh, section off, understand, because there's a different response, as you suggest, to, to each kind. Um, all right, look, I wanna, I'm gonna hop forward a little bit. Um, when you were discussing your practice about gratitude, you, I think you also mentioned uh, something about gratitude journaling. And I know this isn't exactly like a clean segue, but it was something that I really wanted to get to before we ended up. Could, could you explain um, the interaction of mindfulness, gratitude, and then to the extent you're, you know, how you mix in gratitude journaling um, in your daily routine? Sure. So the uh, the idea behind journaling, which was really interesting to me, like this is when I first found out about journaling, and you know people were like, "Oh, you should try journaling." I'm like, you know, what do you? What am I, a teenage girl? Right? That's not that's not for grown men. And then I started getting into, you know, lo and behold, there's science. There's actually evidence and testing behind this idea of slowing down, writing out your thoughts, being intentional about your planning, working through difficult emotions. And, you know, putting pen to paper. And they've actually done studies on uh, uh, pan uh, cancer patients, you know, recovering from cancer have a much higher success rate of recovery when they're actually keeping journals, right? And their intentions to recover and their routines and working through the troubles and issues and their worries and so forth. Uh, and you know, there have been studies on people have been unemployed for long periods of time, right? And they take one group and say, we want to we want you to journal and capture your ideas and your plans, being intentional about getting back to work. And the other group didn't. And what they found is the folks who journaled and were more intentional about their life and about their job search got employment 70% uh, faster than folks who didn't. So the idea here, I think, from a gratitude perspective and connecting it to journaling, and you can do this with whatever is most important to you, is to be intentional about life, right? So, you know, even, you know, five minutes of capturing your thoughts on what's troubling me, how can I work through that and so forth. Too many of us make a practice of ruminating on the bad, of gossiping to the point where it becomes a hobby. You know, and in a work setting, this idea of, you know, people talk about like, oh, you know, what I hate about our culture is blah, 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 right? And it turns into this sort of ne ongoing negativity where they invite other people in, like, whoa, is me, this place is terrible, right? 
but it doesn't have the release of resolution. And so journaling is how do you explore these issues in your life, but then the plan for resolution, the plan for a better way forward. And that's where we like to connect the dots, you know, within our, uh, within our training, and you, you experience this within our training programs as well, is that is another form of um, mindfulness practice, right? Calm and focus the mind, be intentional about living, explore resolution against the issues you're facing. Super helpful. Um, before I move on, I think this is connected, but if it's not, forgive me. Um, your quick thoughts on the value, especially for leaders, of forgiveness. Yeah, so we have, we have um, programs around this whole topic. And uh, I think for, for any type A personality, the nature of working in a commanding work culture is you know, first up, you get caught up in this, 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 uh, the idea, like management sometimes will talk about, like, you know, uh, what they want to be. Like, I'm a visionary, follow me, we're going to change the world, things are going to be great, da, da, da. But when people get stressed, they dip into this, you know, commanding way uh, of being that actually impacts and turns into a whole company culture, right? So if you're stuck in that, um, uh, you know, faster, cheaper, get it done, no excuses, ship the product, make the client happy, which to the point where that's, that becomes the entire culture, it ends up being like us against them, right? And mistakes aren't forgiven. And uh, you know, the idea behind forgiveness is uh, a deep part of human relationships, right? Can I forgive you for things big and small? Uh, can we have an open dialogue about those things, how they affect me, how they affect you? so that we can actually build on a foundation of trust uh, and move forward and collaborate versus trying to work together on a foundation of quicksand where I'm not trusted and everything about our day is do this, do that, or else. So that's a, a business example. And of course we get into uh, relationships with spouse and children and making you know forgiveness and saying I'm sorry and being grateful for relationships on a regular basis goes a very long way to removing these negative ruminations to being caught up in you know why I don't like someone why I don't trust someone um, you know and once again the more we think about or whatever it is we spend our time thinking about occupies so much of our time right so forgiveness is a great way to clear the slate and think about better things and build good relationships and I think it's just so hard for your typical person Right. It's not necessarily built in to everybody from the beginning. Um, and so kind of coming to this at some point in your life, understanding it in context uh, could be really important. All right. Uh, last major topic I want to cover is emotional awareness. Mindfulness can aid one in recognizing their emotions and managing their emotions. I, I think that's correct. Uh, if you could... Well, first of all, is it correct? And if you could elaborate on that process, um, I think that would be really helpful. Sure. So the, I think uh, first, the, the five key areas of emotional intelligence that uh, Dan Goleman researched in his uh, famous book on emotional intelligence, uh, self-awareness, uh, self-regulation, um, understanding your motivations, uh, empathy, and social skills, right? How we interact with people. And I think the mindfulness is the foundation, and I like to use the analogy as you're walking upstairs or going up a ladder of, of skills. Mindfulness is the, the base of emotional intelligence, meaning I can be uh, calm and focused, uh, open and aware as a starting point. And this idea of emotional uh, intelligence uh, gets into starting with yourself and then moving into other relationships. So self-awareness, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Do I understand my own emotions and perspectives? Um, you know, later we build into understanding other people's emotions and perspectives is really critical uh, because most of us get caught up in this, you know, the old way of working, like, like where am I in the pyramid? You know, who am I in charge of? And the way of working has changed so much uh, that the, the old like I'm the smartest and I'm in charge, you know, I have a high IQ is out the window. What companies are looking for more and more is emotional intelligence. Can you lead, inspire, motivate, uh, connect, 
collaborate to drive teams to success. And uh, that's the skill everyone is desperate for um, right now. And so when we think about emotional intelligence in these, these five areas, uh, you know, it's what Harvard Business Review calls the must-have skills for modern professionals. Uh, and I think that goes a long way. You know, early in my career, and this may resonate with you, you know, at uh, growing up in uh, at PwC, there was no talk around this. It was like, you know, hit your numbers, win a client, you know, put in your hours. They better be billable. Uh, and uh, if you do that, you can stay. If you don't, you can't. And that kind of behavior was rewarded, and that was the culture. Uh, even PwC now, uh, who is embracing mindfulness, uh, you know, years later and is thankfully uh, one of our clients is uh, bringing these practices in to create this sort of what do we need for the next wave of professionals to deal with the norm? And the norm is, you know, disruption, innovation, constant change, right? Deal with that. Um, so that, that's what excites me about emotional intelligence. These are the skills for the game has changed. Do you have the skills to play the new game? Yeah. The as I looked at it, the things that kind of caught me off guard, but also um, I thought were valuable with regard to emotional intelligence or emotional awareness, is that the more emotional aware you are, uh, the more that influences your self confidence. And the other one was um, that one can actively move from compulsion to choice. Um, which, you know, gets back to the living a deliberate life. So that's what I, that's what I picked out of it. All right. Um, as a way to wrap things up, let's try to relate all this back to being a better founder. Is all of the value gained through mindfulness simply leading by example, or are there ways that folks can translate specific behaviors into a better corporate culture? Yeah, I think it, it, it really does come down to, you know, certainly leading by example is great. But um, for anyone who's read uh, the Edelman Trust Survey, uh, uh, you'll recognize there are major, major issues in organizations. And so the, for the first time ever, you know, in their new study, the vast majority of employees distrust uh, the four forms of, you know, uh, uh, of st structure and infrastructure more than they trust it. So, uh, you know, government, uh, the media, news, um, uh, and company leadership, right, are included in that list. And so if your starting point is like, oh, things have changed, employees get more and more of their news through Slack channels and chat rooms, and they trust each other more than they trust management and a lot more than they trust the CEO, um, that's kind of a fact. And, you know, if anyone hasn't read the Edelman Trust Survey, I encourage you to do it. You can get it online for free. Um, so the way we've worked has changed. And more and more employees are looking for, and particularly in a startup culture, how do we work and collaborate together, create together? Um, and that does have to translate into specific be behaviors, right? So being more open, transparent, uh, trusting, um, managing conflict, and training people on um, uh, the, this idea that conflict and stress can be good if we access it in the right way, right? If we have the right skills to be curious, open, non-judgmental, kind, collaborative, and so forth. And so these kind of behaviors are what we tr are training as default modes. In the absence of that, you know, to the listener, what are you training yourself in regularly? You know, is it uh, conflict, conspiracy theories, second guessing, uh, and how does that affect your own confidence and your team confidence, right? So we found more and more in the research is, you know, whatever you're tr practicing daily creates a cycle that is either positive and brings people along to that positivity or is negative and invites people into that negativity. Hmm. I think, I think it was you guys who did this survey. Um, if it's not, then I'm sure you'll correct me. But um, some of the findings, particularly as it related to culture, were that 42% of leaders reported um, improved decision making. 86% of leaders reported better listening, 68% uh, reported better clarity, and 93% reported being more innovative. Um, I would say that's 
all those things are pretty positive impact on corporate culture. Yes, absolutely. And so needed uh, today. We do, we've done over, I think we're approaching 100,000 surveys within our product. Uh, and we ask people about, like, are these practices helping you with specific goals? So all of our training programs are goal-based. And things like, you know, reduce daily stress, calm anxiety, connect authentically, deepen relationships, manage back pain, improve insomnia, and so forth. And so these specific techniques, these different forms of practices done on a regular basis, we want to know, is it working? So uh, I think on average across we across the board, we average 93%. And the full range is somewhere between 86 and 97%. So we optimize the training. And again, bite-size practices that you can repeat, easy to learn and easy to repeat to create new te- routines in your life is what, re- is what creates, uh, creates those kind of uh, results. Mm. That's, and, and, and I mean, obviously you're getting the right feedback back. All right. I'm going to, um, I'm going to attempt to wrap things up here. Uh, I, I think we skimmed, um, we touched on a lot of things, uh, skimmed the surface on others. Um, is there anything about mindfulness we didn't mention that you think it's important to bring in the discussion? I, I do. It's like when we do a, um, we have a, a half day live training, uh, event called creating mindful leaders. It's a workshop. Uh, it's what the book is based on. And, uh, uh, we end that with kind of a call to action. And so I, I, for your listener, I would share that call to action. And that is, you know, what we learned together is we're training our brains all the time, right? So why not be intentional about it? We're training ourselves either to be uh, happy, healthy, focused, and engaged, uh, or the exact opposite, right? And whatever we're training ourselves, you know, guess what? We're getting better and better at it as time goes by. So I like to end these workshops with a call to action. Uh, you know, it's a, a, a famous saying, to have the things in life that other people do not have, you must be willing to do the things in life that other people won't do. And for me, that came down to, you know, five or 10 minutes a day of a mindfulness practice. And whether that's meditation or journaling or learning these mindful listening uh, and conversation techniques, um, you know, learning to regulate your central nervous system, you know, all of these many, many techniques, find the ones that are right for you and get started. Um, You know, it's a, a little by little, you can address the things in your life to get back to the things you love most and get back to the person you want to be. Sounds like a fair trade. Um, besides the what I would think is pretty data intensive in terms of uh, materials that you've provided in your book, um, what other materials or resources would you point um, interested people toward? Maybe, a, a, I don't know if there's programs from Will, um, anything that you mention, I'm, I'm going to add to the show notes. So, um, anything come to mind? Absolutely. So we, um, when, when it comes to will, we're, uh, com. you can find plenty of, uh, free materials on eBooks, you know, <clears throat> what is mindfulness and, you know, how does it work? Uh, the competitive advantage of emotional intelligence. So we've got all these free educational, um, eBooks that are great for professionals. We, um, we tour and do uh, our Creating Mindful Leaders workshop, so you can find out and sign up uh, in a city near you um, for folks who are in uh, HR, leadership and development, and so forth. We also provide ongoing continuing education credits there, and we have monthly webcasts uh, on different topics. We're always featuring uh, you know, top experts in their field on things like managing insomnia, back pain, safety, uh, mindfulness, emotional intelligence skills, you name it. And so start there. Uh, my new book, Creating Mindful Leaders, uh, is available online everywhere and, uh, and has been a big hit with our clients. Uh, beyond that, the uh, uh, I think you can find plenty of tools uh, uh, online to get started. Uh, and whether you want to do this on your own, uh, I'd say, you know, find a great app to get started. Uh, if you want to do this uh, for your organization, uh, Will's number one in the world at serving organizations and helping employees do this. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I think that gives you a handful of things uh, to tap into. That's a great list. Um, 
And what about you? Where do people find you? Do you want to be found on social media elsewhere? Um, I noticed that you presented a lot of conferences. Maybe there's a calendar someplace that people could uh, find you if they want. Yeah, this is how I spend most of my time. Like I did, spoke at, uh, did 24 keynotes uh, last year. So I traveled the world talking about, you know, disruption, mindfulness, emotional intelligence. Um, the, uh, so you can find where I'm speaking on world.com as well. And if anyone's interested in uh, booking us for your companies, uh, uh, we would be happy to do that. We've got a, a 68 uh, NPS score, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're known for is really, um, uh, you know, we're going to get a lot into this today, but we kind of make stress and resilience fun, right? We get people laughing, nodding their heads about the crazy things that happen inside of big companies. Um, and then from there, we go right into the techniques that they can learn in, you know, our workshops, through our books, and so forth. So if that's of interest, um, uh, anyone can ping me at joe, uh, joe at will.com. Uh, or you can find me at uh, Joe W. Burton, B-U-R-T-O-N, on Twitter. Joe, that's a conclusion. Thanks very much. I, um, this is a really far-reaching topic, and, and talking with you about it, is, I think, has been very valuable. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure, and uh, thanks, everyone, for their attention. This has been Intangibles. I'd like to thank Denton's Venture Technology Group at dentonsventurebeyond.com for being the sponsor this season and a supportive partner. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard-charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at dentonsventurebeyond.com. I'd like to thank VC Careers for their support, and I'd also like to thank Ben Glaue, who's a fantastic sound engineer. It is a privilege to work with him. Find him on Twitter. His handle is at visible underscore sound. And thank you. Keep an eye out for the next episode. I'm your host, Steve Burr.